Welcome to Make Set Class Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This July 7th, 2020 edition, episode 140 of Nature Bats Last, comes to you from Rakino Island in Aotearoa and from Central Florida in the United States. This is Kevin Hester, and I'm joined by Guy McPherson and our sometime co-host, Pauline Schneider. In addition, we have a guest for today's show. Today's guest is Jeff Gibbs, uh, director of uh, Planet of the Humans, which has recently been censored on YouTube. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to Nature Bats Last. Hey, look, I'd first like to discuss the facile grounds for YouTube removing the documentary after 8 million views on a technicality of using a four-second clip. For me, it showed how desperate they were to remove the documentary at any cost to their impartiality. This augurs badly for the future of censorship. How, how was your communication first with YouTube when they decided they were going to pull the, the documentary? Um, well, we, we just woke up on Memorial Day here. I think it was, um, uh, you know, forget which, which day it was, the end of May, and... Uh, Somebody just texted me and said, hey, uh, your movie's not up anymore. And we're like, what? what what's going on? Um, so first of all, you know, YouTube in some ways was very good with us and worked with us to get it up and, you know, on YouTube. And, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know what it's costing them to have millions of views, but they were very receptive. And we viewed this as somewhat of an experiment because if a movie of this caliber and this importance could be on YouTube free... Um, you know, that's kind of a big deal. And, uh, you know, in, in desperate times, you take step, desperate measures. You know, I put many, many years and everything I had into this film. Uh, but, you know, we wanted to try and, uh, you know, break through this log jam where I think, as you and Guy know, you know we're, headed, we're headed off the cliff. Not only are we, are we headed off the cliff, the cliff is rushing towards us. And we're all just blathering on about how, oh, we're going to have solar panels and, uh, you know, electric cars, and somehow it's going to avert catastrophe. So we work with YouTube, and um, I don't know what internally was going on at YouTube, except I think what they did is they decided to play things technically just close to the vest like we were just any video that was posted. So um, we got, you know, I, I can't say what their motives or what was happening, except that they suddenly, I can imagine that they were getting tons of pressure uh, because Others were getting um, pressure. Um, you know, I, I can't even describe some of the things that we heard were going on behind the scenes. But um, so we got no notice. It was down and it was a holiday weekend. So, of course, that's a very strategic time uh, to remove something because you can't reach anyone. Um, and then, you know, there had been some attacks published against us in the guardian, including the call for censorship, it was repeated straight up in a headline, you know, climate experts call for movie to be, you know, pulled down. Um, and the guardian refused to, to print my response to this, to these attacks. Uh, and there were more than, you know, there were a couple more articles attacking us of that, despite a four star review, preceding the attacks, I'm sure they were pissed off about that. So, uh, then a couple hours later, after the the uh, our movie with Planet of the Humans was taken down from YouTube, 
um, suddenly we get an email from The Guardian. Would we like to, to respond to the takedown of the film? Now, how did they even notice that quickly? They were the first ones we heard from. And it turns out that the, um, that the person filing the copyright claim, Toby Smith, had a contractual relationship with The Guardian. They had, they had bought, paid for his work. And he was actually, it turned out, uh, he is, has been funded by the Rasmussen Foundation, the same foundation that Bill McKibben stumbles over, one of them, at the end of the, at the, end of the film. So it was, it was pretty frightening if, if a film with 8 million views and with Michael Moore's uh, name and weight behind it can be removed in a sort of a pro forma, just, you know, by the rules, suddenly we're it's all by the rules. Um, you know, it's just, it is frightening. And, and I think one of, I think we're rightfully in a time, especially in the, in the States now where we're confronting hate speech and violent speech and, um, you know, police violence and the violence on the right. And I just think we also have to be aware that we too on the left can have a tendency to be, um, for our hate and our urge to censor, uh, to leak out. And I think we have to be very, very watchful of that because um, I believe that in this time of global civilizational collapse, and I'm even hesitant to say that because I see what's happened to guys, you know, for saying it, not just, <laughs> not just to me, but um, somebody's got to say it. And in this time of global civilizational uh, and environmental collapse, the environmental collapse being way down the road and the civilizational just now beginning, um, all sides are prone to tribalism and um, anger. And, uh, you know, it can also bring out a time of strife can also bring out our best instincts to help each other and to love our neighbors. But we have to be very self-aware that um, we also may be prone to trying to, um, uh, you know, I just see a lot of anger on, on both sides. And, of course, it's way worse on the right. But we have to be very careful. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. This is Guy. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Well, miracle of miracles. We're joined today by by our sometime co-host, Pauline Schneider. She's sharing the microphone with me. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Pauline. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Guy, and, and Kevin as well. And thank you for having me on your show. It's, it's an honor to be here. Oh, yeah. We very much appreciate your work and particularly the planet of the humans which we can completely relate to the experience of sharing information that's might be confusing and alarming to people and then having it removed <laughs> suddenly at the very least is unwelcome by the masses we certainly understand that what uh, well, i wanted to ask um sorry. jeff uh you know in in your documentary you, you um you said that you started as a nine-year-old pouring sand into one of the tractors that was removing a forest near your home. And I just, I mean, I, I love that. And where did you get that idea? Because I think we're probably about the same age um, and we didn't have the internet back then. And I don't remember knowing that stuff right. when I was nine. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, it's a very good question. And uh, if I'm going on too long with my answers, just let me know. But 
I actually had a couple lines of narration that dropped off, which was like, you know, there was there was no Earth First. There was there had been no Earth Day. There was no environmental movement. I mean, none. There was no internet. There was, um, and so I had cousins that lived in the country. We kind of what we would later come to call like Rambo. We were we would often run through the woods and, um, you know, just you know we weren't doing any any real damage to anything, but we would dig trenches and underground forts and try and block the trail from the teenagers that were driving up there and, you know, put sticks and boards across the road. And so I, that, I gave you the, the vaguely that kind of sense of, uh, uh, running wild, but the woods, um, you know, my mother's a single parent. I grew up in the worst, you know, the most poor part of Flint. In fact, the joke I had was we were too poor to live in Flint. Um, <laughs> but my saving grace was these woods and they were just, they were a miracle of, a tall remnant hardwoods with um, elderberries and, you know, just birds and squirrels. And I was just a wonderland for me. And I just couldn't believe that they were knocking it down. And I just thought somebody, I just, you know, I was at the age where I was like, I, I still couldn't believe that things could happen, bad things could happen in the world. And that it couldn't be stopped. So I just actually just started to put things across the trail. And I actually put spikes through a board and threw it out there. It was a bulldozer. That wasn't going to stop the bulldozer. I was just desperate. I don't know what got into me, but um, and then I, they parked the bulldozer uh, right near my apartment, and I just was like so distraught. I laced up my kid tennis shoes one Sunday morning before anybody got up, tiptoed out, and you know. So I don't know what got into me because, you know, uh, I was an all A student, and um, you know I was the, like the model kid who never got in any, into any trouble, and um, you know was in played sports and uh, student council and all that stuff. So I don't know. It's just something about the trees affected me from a very young age. And then uh, when I was older and, you know, I just desperately wanted to live close to trees, having grown up in Flint. So the trees are a very foundational part of the story because I I don't know if you, um, just looking at your website, Kevin, I think you also refer to this, but just the trees dying everywhere. Um, and, And Pauline, I don't know if you've noticed this, over your, you know, where you grew up or where your, your lifetime, but I just noticed the trees starting to die, and uh, yeah. all different kinds of trees. And I wondered why nobody was talking about this dieback that I've seen, you know, for the last thirty years. So that's almost where the movie began, where my life began, but where the movie began. It's like, why are all the trees dying? And why is nobody talking about it? And what what does it mean exactly? Right. And in Michigan, you were at ground zero for development or overdevelopment in the heart of the automobile industry at the time when it was really booming. So, and as you indicated, you were a reasonably intelligent person mm-hmm. as a child. You were an all-A student. So, of course, you noticed what was going on, mm-hmm. put together a couple of dots, and changes needed to be made. And if the trees weren't dying, someone was taking them down. So, and I think. We've all noticed that, and, and that's been completely heartbreaking for any of us who paid attention to the trees. We have a caller, Mimi. The, the solution to dying trees is to the solution to dying trees is to cut them down and kill them ahead of time. Right, like, right. What a genius right. idea! <laughs> right. <laughs> we have a caller, Mimi from Portland. Yeah. Hey. Um, so, I, Jeff, you sound like a decent person, and um, that's about the best I can give right now because uh, I don't know you. 
and I don't trust anybody, really. Um, the question I have for you is kind of in three parts. I, I don't understand why knowing what you knew and knowing what you learned later seems to at least in great part have come from Guy, from Guy's work. And throughout the movie, there are pieces that are basically plagiarized from Guy, from his work, his peer-reviewed papers, from his essays, from, you know, all over the place, because there aren't other scientists speaking about this except for a handful, not even a handful, like three. And those other, those other scientists Guy mentions and uses their work with crediting them in his peer-reviewed papers. So my question to you is, why is Guy's name not mentioned? Why was Guy not interviewed for this movie? Why was Guy not credited at the end for so much of this information being brought out? Where was the information? Where was Professor Tim Garrett of Utah? Where was his information? Why wasn't his name mentioned? There are stunning um, um, gaps in where this information came from, and it didn't come out of a vacuous hole. It came out specifically from Guy's work. And it bothers me when people who seem relatively decent um, make me question their decency by not doing the right thing, by not giving credit where credit is due, as if that's something that's difficult to do. It's not. And, I mean, maybe maybe people who made the movie, you and, um, you know, Michael, they don't want to be associated with Guy because being associated with Guy brings whatever that brings. You know, and those of us who have been following Guy for a long time know what that brings. Mimi, can you let and Jeff respond? Mimi, can you yeah. let Jeff respond, please? Don't go on too long. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Guy, you didn't cash the $100,000 check we sent you. Come on. What's the deal here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, thank you. Thank you for your question. And it's, it's, it's a, which, what you're saying is kind of stunning because actually I've never, guy, we've never talked. Um, I've never met. I actually never, I know this might sound embarrassing, but I actually have never read Guy's work. I was aware of him. Um, and I'm aware of some of the people that you're talking about. Um, but this truly is my movie. It's not Michael's movie. It's not Ozzy's movie. This is my story. And I discovered this stuff going down my own path. And I, I made a kind of semi-conscious decision as I was going down this journey. Um, you know, there are certain uh, people that have taught, written about um, collapse, overpopulation, uh, limits to resources. And I decided that I was better off discovering my own voice um, I even have a, a fantastic interview with Chris Hedges uh, that we were going to use and, and that we uh, left off at the last minute because I thought this movie is a testament to what other people are saying, but I'm saying it my own way. So that, that's a pr pretty uh, stunning uh, awareness, and I'm, that's why I was eager to have this call because, you know, um, Derek Jensen, you know, I've, I've done his podcast. I, I read some of Derek's stuff like 20 years ago, but... I've intentionally stayed away from um, diving into anybody else's books or literature to, to, to tell the story my own way and to sort of, I, th I thought it might serve as a co confirmation for people who are in uh, telling similar stories. And Guy, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but um, certainly I heard of you and, and, and uh, your courage and what you're doing, 
and that many people admired what you were doing, but um, you know, I, there, I think there's a name in qualitative research for that kind of approach, where you 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 carve your own path through the data yourself. Right. Yes. Absolutely. I appreciate your sense of humor and your honesty. Thank you for both. Yeah. As a filmmaker, so, when I did my my film, uh, Going Dark, five years ago. I can completely relate to what you said about telling your own story. I mean, it's there are a lot of choices that we have to make when we're editing, and it's it, sometimes it's very difficult. And and mine was short. Mine's only thirty minutes long, so you know, I really and it's actually, you know, I think what you've done is is pretty great because. Uh, I know that you got a lot of criticism about not mentioning nuclear in either good or negative way, and I and I and I respect that you made that choice, and I think that I think it's I think it was an important choice. Can you can you talk about that? Well, you know, as I'm thinking about moving forward, um, and you know, doing podcasts and doing programs like this, and. There's a tension being a filmmaker and a storyteller, and uh, and I think we need to hold ourselves as documentarians to um, to journalistic standards and being journalists as well as storytellers. And and so, how much do I conjecture and spool out something uh, before I fully explored it? Before I've done the full amount of research, where before I've interviewed people. So, um, I personally believe. Uh, Many of the same limits apply to um, nuclear as apply to so-called renewables. And we need to find a different way because there's absolutely zero renewable about renewable energy technology. Um, so we just didn't have time to deal with it. And if you're going to dive into it, you got to do, do it properly. But I was thinking, you know, I believe we're hitting all, we're hitting all sorts of limits. And even if we had some kind of free zero-carbon supposedly forever infinite energy handed to us clever apes, uh, the only thing that would happen is we'd run ourselves off the cliff faster because we haven't grown up yet. Um, so, and whether it's hydroelectric, nuclear, fossil energy, or so-called renewables, they all command resources from the planet. Uh, carbon isn't the only thing. So I was hoping people would begin to generalize and have some of their own thoughts, and we would save some of the discussion about whether, uh, if we humans got it together, what, if any, energy source uh, we would use. Um, but does that make any sense? I, I just don't, I think people of different political stripes are just all searching for a miracle. You know, people who believe in fossil fuels want to believe that there can be clean fossil fuels that are f forever. People, environmentalists want to believe that there can be clean renewable energy when there's no such thing. And I think nuclear you know, a certain branch of, uh, you know, people want to believe in, in a clean nuclear um, fantasy, too. So, um, but I think, I think for the most part, people believe what they want to believe. And the evidence is pretty irrelevant for most people most of the time. So we've gone through some of the downsides of being an honest filmmaker and honest communicator. So what's the good side? What's what's in your opinion? What's the best part about being a filmmaker? Why do you keep doing this? Number one, no civilization can persist. No culture, no tribe, without people willing to 
to sacrifice for the greater good. And I say that in a weird way because I believe that, you know, we all get endorphins from what we think is the right thing to do and, and it makes us feel good. But I've just always felt, you know, growing up first in Flint, that I had an obligation to tell the stories of the people that are suffering. And I think I've seen what we're in for, a miniature version of what we're in for, in the collapse of the place I grew up. And, uh, the, you know, the uh, economic and literal violence that's there. So um, after working on this for so long, and maybe um, some of you know this feeling, uh, despite the attacks that came, you know, within days and weeks, um, we were racking up first, you know, oh, there's, look, it's 100,000, it's 500,000. We thought, oh, this is a huge deal. We're hitting a million. And then, like, 2 million and 3 million, 4 million. And so, even amidst the stress of having spent years working on this, risked everything, you know, I'm living in a kind of a rental house with a 20-year-old car, um, I just suddenly felt a sense of relief, like, this story is out there now. And they can't contain it. And I've got a chance to reveal some of these things I've discovered and felt for a long time. So I, I just felt this tremendous sense of relief. Um, that, And I actually had been afraid of um, something would happen to me before I got the story completed and out. Uh, because I really believe that we're running ourselves, and we're, you know, that we're being ran off the cliff by industrial civilization and its apologists. And... We as a species are not facing the species don't last forever. So I just felt, you know, it's a good thing whether we can pull ourselves back from the abyss or not for people to know uh, the, rea the reality of the time we're in. Um, and I'm shocked, Guy, that you got some of the same people saying some of the same things, like just trying to dismiss, you know, your warnings and your in your work. It's just it's 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 amazing. It's the same people, isn't it? Yeah, it's almost as if some of those people are receiving some sort of incentive to promulgate the information they're putting out. Or to stop your information from getting out. Right. Or I do believe you. there's an incentive because, you know, if you're at, you know, Jim, Yale or Berkeley or somewhere, you're, you're living this good life. And the, the grants that you receive and the adulation you receive and the status you receive, even if you're not getting money, I think you're you're an apologist for this life that people are living, and so you get really angry um, at people that are saying, "No, no, this is all a mirage." Right. Um, in our in our email communications, Jeff, before the show, um, one of the one of the joking questions I I sent to you was. Has anyone done the math on how many years a Congolese child has to dig in a mine to recover enough lithium for an electric car battery? This is one of the things that no one wants to confront when we talk about um, so-called renewables, that where do all these rare earth metals come from? They come from either China or in Africa, where people on very, very low wages are working in very, very poor conditions so that we can feel high and mighty about driving, driving around an electric vehicle. Kevin, do you think it's almost like a, a new kind of colonialism, the mining that's going on in the name of technology and green technology? I, 
absolutely believe that. Um, when I was a young fellow, I was heavily involved in the anti-apartheid struggle. And, and what I saw in South Africa is, and you know, since that time, is that the conditions haven't improved for black people. They might have a black president, but they're still being controlled by the corporations. In those studies and in my involvement in those times, one I, I had a, um, a huge hero of mine was a man called Chris Harney, who was a communist in the South African Communist Party and who was also the leader of Nkumwe Siswe, the military wing of the ANC. And if he had not have been executed days before the end of um, the apartheid regime, he would have become president and he would have nationalized all those mines and all those appalling working conditions that continue today would be would have been stopped. So he got a bullet in the back of the head just days before the end of apartheid in his own driveway. And the very moderate lawyer, Nelson Mandela, became the president of, of South Africa and very little change for those people. And I, and I traveled extensively in an overland truck through Africa, and I've been to a lot of those countries. I didn't go into the Congo because it was too dangerous when I was there. But I've had a look at the conditions that those people are working in all around Africa, and it is a modern form of slavery and a modern form of colonialism. There's no question about it. Oh, that, that's amazing. And and I do want to do some follow-up, whether it's a, a movie or a, or a series, and... Uh, you know, the caller's suggestion to, um, to interview you or, or all of you and, or to connect somehow um, with some stories to help bring out the, in greater detail what we're, we've all discovered. You know, uh, that's a great question. You know, how long would it take a child to mine enough cobalt for an electric car? You know, I don't know. Um, you know, and even if we started to make the plan of the humans right now, a lot of things would look worse. You know, there's lithium mining. I think it's in Bolivia where it's destroying the desert. And uh, you see a brief scene of a child and a, and a father involved in the lithium mining, just a, just a few seconds in the movie. But, you know, they're thinking about opening a lithium mine in the United States. And lo and behold, it's in, uh, there's a species, um, I forget which species it is, but there's an endangered species right in that, in that area. And, and again, they'd be, they'd be, destroying thousands of acres and, and perhaps square miles of desert habitat. It's going to use water. Um, they're proposing whole new rounds of solar arrays. One of them is going to be not five square miles, but 14 square miles, and there's 1,200 endangered desert tortoises um, that live there. You know, recently, I don't think it's preceded, but uh, several years ago, Toyota had a contract with a company that's going to mine um, rare earth metals into pristine area in a pristine area of Quebec between two First Nations communities and some of the most pure water on the planet. And of course, as you see in the film, and that's that's the footage in question that Toby Smith um, you know had control of that we actually we decided to pull it out just because we didn't want to deal with them. But you know, they wanted to build to put up a, uh, a rare earth mine in Quebec and, of course, you see that it produces radioactive waste, and they're going to do it in this First Nations precious waters area. You know, in Mongolia, there's a dramatic amount of mining that China's expanded through Mongolia that's just destroyed so many um, people who were living sim simply and relatively sustainably. It's destroyed their way of making a living and destroyed habitat. You know, mining's already 10% of global energy emissions. So uh, this is why I get worked out, because... 
they want us to keep focused on only climate change, which is real, and only the solution, the magical thinking solutions of, of green energy, rather than realizing the whole human enterprise of industrial civilization at this level is not sustainable. And that's become my mission since the film's come out. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but it's just become very clear that I think that's where the battle is, is that as long as they keep people convinced that we've got lots and lots of time before the collapse, um, everybody will just keep carrying on like normal. You know, you mentioned earlier the work of Tim Garrett, and and his ideas are completely consistent with those of the film Planet of the Humans. He has published at least four peer-reviewed papers indicating that industrial civilization is a heat engine, regardless how civilization is powered. And so it, it appears that there's no escape. But then the other side of that coin is to reduce or shut down industrial activity, which leads to the idea of global dimming or the aerosol masking effect. Are you, are you familiar with that notion? Yeah, I'm familiar with it uh, from about 10 years ago, but I haven't heard the latest. And I assume it's still the same that as we actually, I think in the days after 9-11, um, with the, uh, when all the planes stopped, I, I think, wasn't there a small increase in detectable and global temperatures right, right then? Do I have that right? Yes, there was. And the contrail effect is a little different than the aerosol masking effect. And that's all right. We don't need to get into that. I think Pauline has a question she wanted to ask with respect to our educational endeavors. Well, yeah, I mean, when, um, you know, you're talking about how it's so hard to get people to focus on what's actually important, what's actually going on. Um, and, you know, both Guy and I are educators, and he's been doing this a lot longer than most of us, and he's barely made a nudge, you know. And I'm just wondering if you have any ideas, like, how do we, how do we reach people? How do we educate them? How do we, how do we show them that, you know, the, this, the greenwashing has, you know, it's, it's, a, it's tricked us, really. I mean, I, I, had, a, I had a Prius and I had, I put solar panels on my house and, you know, I, I switched over to natural gas. I mean, I, I was completely sucked into all of that. And I mean, how do we, what, how do we do it? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, and, you know, we've all, you know, I got my, as you see in the film, I got my cabin wired for solar panels, but I, I could never afford them. So I didn't put them on. Um, but here I was living in the woods, you know, thinking, oh, I'm Mr. Sustainable. And what's the first thing I had to do? Have a bulldozer come in and chop down some trees. It's like, you know, yeah. I had blocked out. So it's, um, yeah, I think your question has two levels. One is uh, the reason we ma I made a film um, was because I felt, even when I, the first movie I ever worked on was Bowling for Columbine. And at that time I had noticed things were beginning to unravel in a way that I couldn't ignore it. You know, uh, that was in the late nineties. I noticed the honeybees, uh, dying back. That's when I began to notice the trees, um, you know, invasive species were spreading. Um, we were getting some pretty big heat waves and droughts through Michigan. So when I accidentally fell into working on bowling for Columbine, because I grew up in the neighborhood, um, you see in the, in the movie where the little girl was killed, um, and I knew Michael from high school, so 
the two kind of came together and I started working on bowling and I fell into this. I'm like, um, everything I did for Michael's movie just seemed to work out very well. And so within two years, I went from um, substitute teaching and trying to write about nature stuff just to get by and to living in New York and producing Fahrenheit and all while working on those films, I said to myself, this is a chance to learn so I can make a film about the state of the planet and why exactly we're pretending everything's normal when it's not. So I think um, when you look at what has the most influence on culture um, the, the, in terms of art, uh, I think film is still what I, I call the coin of the realm. I still think it's, you know, I don't think that many people saw an inconvenient truth for better or for worse. Um, but many, it was talked about and talked about and talked about, um, you know, movies like supersize me, you know, about eating fast food, you know, that had a certain box office, but it was talked about. And, and so that's why I decided to make a film because I think it influences the culture. So I actually think rather than cognitive information, we need to get more stories out there. Um, and I, th I just want to put this out there because I haven't mentioned this, but I do want to do uh, one or two more documentaries, a series, maybe a fiction film. Um, you know, I think we live in a vis visual, an audiovisual culture, and I think books are good, but um, I think we need to think in terms of, I think that's why Planet of the Humans broke through in a way that other things haven't because it was, it's a story. Um, if that makes any sense. And in the story, you know, one of, one of our things about works of art is that in a, in a movie, you, sh you set things up to be questions. You're on a quest to answer questions. The problem with um, people reading papers or informational documentaries is it's just, it doesn't engage the right part of your mind body. It just embraces the, embraces the, engages the cognitive part, um, which, as Guy said, you know, we pick and choose what information we want to believe. But, Helene, does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. I, I agree 100%. I mean, I grew up in Greece, and I went to uh, an American school there where they the program was MAKOS, Man, a Course of Study, and the, one of the primary methods of teaching us were National Geographic films. So that was my intro to anthropology and filmmaking as a child, and it stuck. It stuck. <laughs> And, and you think about works of art that have changed the world. There was a uh, a, um, a TV movie uh, the day after about nuclear war, a fiction film. That changed everything in terms of uh, nuclear uh, bombs and yeah. nuclear nuclear energy, frankly. Um, uh, Silent Spring changed everything. Kevin, you have a question. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up the subject of inconvenient truth. Uh, for me, one of the absolute classic takeout lines from um, um, Planet of the Humans was, is Al Gore a prophet? And the, <laughs> one person asked, is Al Gore a prophet? And the response was, how do you spell prophet? And I, yeah, you know, it's one of those very subtle little um, lines that I thought had a, 
an extraordinary amount of impact because, as, as you uh, made very clear, the links between some of these big environmental groups and NGOs and so-called uh, act, uh, environmental activists, you know, the rock star ones, they always have links back to big money. And it's that old Latin term, cubono, or follow the money. And I think that's mm. one of the things that the, the documentary did spectacularly well. It showed how influenced people were by access to money. Uh, yes, I, I agree. And the, um, you know, I was just, I just did a BBC interview and I was, I wrote a note that I didn't get a chance to say, which is, uh, I'm really disappointed in our, um, so-called, uh, liberal media. Um, and nobody's picked up on this that Al Gore started his green sustainable investment fund with David Blood from Goldman Sachs before an inconvenient truth came up. Before. You know, anybody else that, that did that would be pilloried. You know, if I started some kind of fund to profit from, from my movie, um, but the fact that that part of the movie doesn't even get mentioned in the uh, media and doesn't get mentioned that he's, you know, nobody's followed up on him establishing a new fund in the Cayman Islands. Nobody's followed up on their, um, the biomass and biofuel part of their fund. Nobody's, we can't quite know what's in there because they're a private fund, but it's like, um, you know, there's a reason he's lobbying for sugarcane ethanol in Brazil because, you know, it's why, why else? Because they're investing in it. And at that time, um, I don't have the research in front of me and it, it didn't fit into the film, but Van Jones group, the Apollo Alliance, had um, bragged about that giant, you know, thousands of square miles of trees to ethanol plant that was going to be built in northern Michigan. I think that uh, Bill Clinton, you can follow a trail with Bill and Hillary through to uh, ethanol. Bill was down in Brazil also addressing um, just there's so much that just me sitting in a house in the woods couldn't investigate. If we could find this stuff out, what could real reporters find out yet, yeah, but nobody wants to know. You know, we want to keep well, the fantasy alive. And truth. <laughs> hey, uh, we, have a, we have a caller from Ohio. Trent, would you like to ask Jeff a question? No? Okay, go ahead. You go. Carry on, please. Uh, I was... I just wanted to mention that I have come to call the media, whether it's so-called left or so-called right, as the corporate media. Most of the media is in it for one reason and one reason only, and that's the money. Whether it's coming from a so-called liberal slant or a so-called conservative slant, it's the corporate media. And so, as Kevin points out, qui bono? Who benefits? Right. There was the this weekend... Um, as Trump was speaking, the, um, uh, I think the Lakota tribe was blocking the entrance road, and they had blocked it with, with physically with bands, and uh, there was a pretty scary confrontation with riot police. And uh, this was happening live on social media, and I kept looking and looking. Not a single word, not a single cutaway, MSNBC, CNN. You know, it's way cheaper to just have all these talking heads um, on than to have real news going on. But... You know, the, uh, this connects to our story because uh, in a follow-up film, I'd love to have this story in there. Here is one of the poorest communities in North America, and uh, they still have title to the Black Hill. And 
there's a billion dollars sitting there waiting for them to sign it over, um, and they won't take it. But what's going to happen if they sign it over? It's going to be mining for gold and all these metals that we need to keep um, technology and renewable technology going. So um, the people that are holding out um, for the last of nature and for the last of uh, respectability, you know, those their stories are not being told. So that brings up a good question. What do we have to look forward to next from your creativity? What kinds of projects are you working on? I know you've mentioned a few things already. Can you put those into a, uh, a bucket for us and tell us what your priorities are? Uh, that's a good question. I just think it's, um, you know, it's going to be either follow-up film or, or series and still trying to figure that out. I mean, in the situation where it's kind of a, we have to be a creative to film. So and I have to figure out the funding and all that. So that's uh, still to come. But um, this is a great opportunity, you know, to um, get to know you guys and, and to um, to learn some more stories. And maybe there's a way we can um, we don't have to travel the world to film around the world, uh, you know. So uh, just putting together the thoughts of that. But if any of you, if you, if you, if any of you were to say, what's the most important thing um, that we need to, to kind of uh, wake the world up to right now to build forward. I mean, what's, where, do, where do we go from here? Well, at least a few of us think that planetary hospice is a good approach from here forward, given that we are on the verge of destroying all habitat for humans. So trying to figure out what that means, planetary hospice at level of 7.7 .7 or 7.8 billion people is a daunting challenge, obviously. Maybe we can at least start the conversation at a reasonable level. And that's a concept that I um, I think I heard somebody say a long time ago, but I haven't heard it for a while, which is even if we are not able to make a plan to avert catastrophe, we need to make a plan to deal with the, the time that we're in and uh, with the most love that we can have towards our fellow humans and towards all the non-human species. Um, so, yeah, that's a conversation I've, I've not heard um, and that we need to have. We have a caller, Daniel. Are you still on the line? Daniel from Connecticut. How about Dan from Brooklyn? You got Dan and Daniel. Dan, are you with us? Maybe we're in the in the realm of a very very impatient world. <laughs> if you don't get your answer question, you don't get your question answered within the first five seconds. I guess bye bye. Or, or maybe the NSA servers are not working well today. They're overheating. So, Jeff, I'd like to go back to the issue of um, funding. Um, one of the things I saw Mike um, Mike Moore uh, discussed in one of his interviews. He said that. Um, it was going to go back and be a um, f to be released in mainstream films, you know, high street films. And then Mike said that because of the urgency of the situation, you guys decided to upload it direct to YouTube and make it free. How can our listeners and me, how can we support the costs of um, producing the documentary? I've looked on the Planet of the Humans website, planetofhumans.com and I haven't found it. Do you have an opportunity for, for your supporters to help fund the movie? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's so funny that you should say that because um, I think we used to have a, there's a donate button somewhere that's got lost in all the uh, 
uh, all of our uh, putting up our our articles and our responses and our thinking to things. So that's there is a. Uh, uh, I'll make sure that that's front and center. But on the uh, YouTube um, video, there's a uh, donate button there through PayPal to our nonprofit, and um, there should be one on the website. Thank you for noticing that. I'll check that. Um, and you know, so I we were still in the, in the final couple of days of deciding uh, whether how much longer to leave it up for free. But obviously, you know, with 10 million views, um, you know, the choice was to prioritize, um, you know, as many people seeing it as possible. And uh, I say 10 million, even though you're seeing 8 million something, um, I don't think it's at 9 million yet because it's probably higher than that. But we've estimated a million pirated downloads, perhaps, and uh, between the other people that have uh, agreed to host the movie, um, it's at least 10 million. It's probably more like 11 million which could mean 20 million people because often more than one person watches at a time. So um, by any measure, a big success, except, uh, you know, yeah, we, uh, we're looking for a way to fund things going forward. But um, it's got to be the right kind of funding. You know, that's a, that's a difference um, with us. Yeah, well, if... If that hundred thousand dollar check is going to clear, we need to make sure you get a lot of donations coming in. Yeah, I know. It's, that's why you've been held off. You were smart to do that. But, uh, um, but you know, it is. We're getting a think... lightning storm. I'm sorry. I just want to just say quickly, we're getting a lightning storm, and we might get knocked off the air. Kevin will still be on, so just keep going till the okay. end of the show. And I think Dan from Brooklyn is back with us. Dan, did you have a question or a comment? Can anyone hear me? Go ahead, Dan. Yes. There you go. I'm Scott. Hi, uh, we hear you. A, you can hear me. This is Dan from Connecticut, yeah. not Brooklyn. Hi. <laughs> Sorry oh. for hanging up before. I was called away by forces beyond my control. <laughs> um, Jeff, I, I want, first of all, I, I want to say thank you for that film. Uh, thank you for exposing the farce of green energy and renewables. Uh, I knew it was going to get yanked. While watching it, I turned to my wife and I, and I told her, they're going to yank this. This is going to be up the law. Um, I really like your title. Um, I'm sure it was a, it was a play on the movie Planet of the Apes. And of course we have run overrun the planet, but it made me think of a book that I had read, um, some time ago, an author by the name of Will Sell, I believe. It was called Great Apes. And I'm not going to go into a long thing describing the book, but basically it was Planet of the Apes for grown-ups. And it really changed my whole um, view of the human race and what we really are at our core. My question to you is, even though it's too late, do you think the individuals are willing to make... A, a sacrifice for the greater good. It seems to me today, uh, as I see, you know, I've watched the reactions of people to go, you know, for CDC regulations on um, the virus and everything. People don't seem too willing to give up their personal liberties for the greater good. And I wanted to hear your opinion on that. Wow. Yeah, that's a very good question. I, first of all, I'm... Um, not completely in the camp that it's that it's too late. I think it's too late for 
clean energy, I think it's too late. You know, just we don't, you know, it appears to be too late, but we don't know for sure because the one thing we do know is we're stubborn, we're intransigent, we won't change, we can be very destructive, and then suddenly humans can change and have changed. Uh, we know that there were indigenous people, most of whom were living sustainably uh, for thousands of years, uh, tens of thousands of years, uh, you know, in Africa, until disturbed by Western civilization, um, there were tribal people that didn't even destroy their megafauna. We haven't even bothered to learn how that came to be. Maybe somebody studied it. I haven't come across it. So I think um, there's still, you know, individually it's a, tough, it's a tough choice because individual action is, is moral and necessary, and yet we need a collective action if anything's going to change much. So I think there may be a 99% chance it's not going to change, but I think through awareness and by, by accepting that this, the end is now arriving, um, ironically, that's when change can happen. I was a therapist for a long time. And trying to deny um, that you have cancer, trying to deny that you have a, an addiction that may kill you, uh, trying to deny that your family um, is dysfunctional, always ends, you know, in failure. Um, and whatever chance we have, including the chance, you know, to have a, a, a peaceful descent into, even if it's if whatever collapse it is, I think um, comes from awareness. But, yeah, I don't know how the whole human race could change. I don't think it's ever happened where a single species has changed all at once before, but... All I know is we're in deep, we're in extra deep trouble because we're not even asking the questions. And we're not even asking the question, how do, what civilizations have pulled themselves back? Has any pulled themselves back? Um, what cultures, um, you know, I think this is what we need to be studying, not how to get more efficient solar panels, but um, who we are as human beings and how we're going to live going forward. So I know that's a big general question. I personally, if you were to put me in charge, I would, I, I would institute a drastic um, conservation and consumption reduction program, um, or at least that's what I would make the UN talks about, not about how we're going to get the CO2 out of the air, which I don't think is possible, yeah. and doing that in a way that takes care of everyone at a minimal right. level. It's, it's an Thank existential crisis on planetary proportions. <laughs> Jeff, uh, we want to thank you so much for being here today and taking the time to talk to us and share your thoughts and your feelings. It, it's, it really means a lot to us. Thank you well, thank on my you. behalf as well, Jeff. We appreciate you coming on the show, especially given the um, untoward treatment you received from a lot of people. So thank you very much, and let us know how we can help with your future endeavors. I'm going to turn it over to Kevin for the wrap, but thank you, Jeff. Thank you. It's been an honor having you on the show, Jeff, and I admire your courage and integrity for how you've gone through this process. Let's stay in touch going forward. Thank you. Uh, thank we'd you. Like and to thank our listeners today. For the, uh, you can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday of each month at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The next episode will feature a conversation with Dr. Sid Smith visiting assistant professor of mathematics at Hamden Sydney College and general secretary of the Green Party of Virginia. 
It will broad, broadcast live on Tuesday afternoon, the 4th of August, in the United States. If you missed the broadcast, you can find shows in the archives at prn.fm, the Podbean, or at Stitcher, and feel free to rate us on iTunes. Also, continue to follow the Nature Bats last blog, guymcpherson.com, for further updates, interviews, and speaking tours, and you can keep current with my work at kevinhester.live. Thanks again to our guest, Professor Jeff Gibbs, our listeners, and also Afrazin for his music. Until next time. Remember, the dominant culture has been very clever, but in the end, nature bats last. <laughs>